Now, that brings us here to chapter 2. And you have here the prophet's second message. And in this, he describes specific sins. You see, in the first chapter, the sins that are mentioned and the judgment rests upon the fact that they have gone into idolatry and all that that implied. It represented gross immorality, that actually the wages of a harlot ran these high places. That was where they got their funds because of the fact that sex was associated with idolatry. And you find today that in the occult and Satan worship, and I think there's a connection between that and this idolatry of that day, sex plays a very prominent place in it. It is a revelation of man's actually breaking God's commandment. And it destroys the home. And it destroys a sweet and tender relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. There's nothing that will spoil it like that. Because God made the woman to give. And the man is the one to get. And when it's put in that context... And in that spectrum, it is examined under the marriage relationship. It can become the sweetest and the most precious relationship that there is on earth. But my friend, when it moves out and even moves under the name of religion, and today the new morality that we have in this land is an evidence of the fact that we have moved today into an area of a nation that is on the decline and actually is on the way out. Now, in chapter 2, we are going to see specific sins that are mentioned here, and he'll deal with these specific sins, and he'll spell them out. He denounces here the sins of God's people. And actually, the sins here are against one another. It's against mankind, while the sins in the first chapter are actually largely related to God, their relationship to God. You know, when a man is not right with God, he can never be right with his fellow man. And when a man is right with God, he can be. Now, it doesn't mean he always is, but he can be right with his fellow man, and he will treat him as another human being. That's the reason that this lovey-dovey movement that got started a few years ago with the flower children up in the San Francisco area, and we've had many of them that have come to the Lord, but at that time were far from the Lord. And that's the reason that that thing lapsed into gross immorality, and it wrecked the lives of many young people. Why? Well, simply because of the fact that they were not right with God. And when you're not right with God, you won't be right with other people. Someone says, what we need are honest men in government. Yes, what we really need are men who are right with God in government. And when you have that, men who respect and appreciate the Word of God and will listen to it, But we, as I've already indicated, have reached the place where the general public will not hear 
the Word of God today. That was one of the things we took in account when we began this ministry. Could we survive in a nation that had largely rejected God and had come to the place where they didn't want to hear what he had to say? And for that reason, a great deal is streamlined today with sugar plums and with rose water, and it's made very palatable to the natural man. Now, the Word of God is not palatable to the natural man, and that puts this program at a terrible disadvantage because we don't soothe you with sweet music, and I think music has its place, and we don't attempt to use this comforting method, but we attempt to bring out what the Word of God has to say. Now, chapter 2 is not going to be pretty. I don't think that you are going to say that this is the most beautiful chapter that you have found in the Word of God, because very candidly, I don't think it is. But it reveals the sin of the nation that brought destruction upon them. And it's well for not only God's people, but for the nation to wake up. Now, will you listen to him, chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. Now, this not only refers to immorality, it refers specifically to something else. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. Now, even when they go to bed at night, they don't go to sleep. They lie there and devise and plan iniquity. And chances are they're engaging in it at the same time. Many are divorced today, and we've had some experience with folk like this. A wife that complains bitterly that my husband comes home, but he doesn't leave his business back at the place of business He brings it home, and as one wife said to me, even when he goes to bed at night, he can't think of anything but business. He lies there and begins to plan the next day. May I say to you, no wonder that the wife contemplated divorce, because that is the picture that is presented here that God condemns. God does not approve of this sort of thing at all. Now, you'll notice here that they devise this, and in the morning they're able to execute it. They practice it because it's in the power of their hand. The ungodly and the sinner is successful today. Very frankly, the wealth of this country is not in the hands of godly people. I think at one time it was true. But the wealth of the country today is in the hands of the ungodly, and they're able to accomplish their purpose. Why? Because they have the money. The money means power, and they're able to carry through that which is wrong. That's the reason our nation is in the predicament it is right now, friends, because of that. It's not just been an energy shortage. hasn't been this type of thing or that type of thing, or whether this plan would work or another, or whether this part is wrong or another. The power is in the hands of the ungodly today. Now, you try to put this program on 
one of the most powerful stations in the city in the east. And several have attempted this. They never dreamed that they'd get such a rebuff. And you can't imagine the turn down that you get. You talk about the freedom of the press and the freedom of religion today. There is none because of the fact that you're shut out from that type of thing. Now, I'm talking pretty plain, but may I say that I'm telling you today like it is. This is what brought Israel down, and Micah, as we've already noted, presents a philosophy of human government, and God follows it through. And if you don't believe it, read history. This is the way the great nations go down. When the wealth and the power get in the hands of a few ungodly, then God moves in because God has been on the side of the poor. And as Lincoln used to say, God must love poor people. He made so many of them. And he knew what it was to be poor, and some of us know what it is. Now, they plot this. The writer of the Proverbs has something to say about this in the third chapter of Proverbs, verse 27. "...withhold not good from them to whom it's due." when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Say not unto thy neighbor, Go and come again tomorrow. I will give when thou hast it by thee. There's so many people today. I got a very pious letter about a party that has spent $10,000 in a very foolish way, at least an unnecessary manner. And they said, Oh, if that was only given to the through the Bible, how it could help the through the Bible. Well, these folk had no intention of giving it to our program when they had it. They were using it for something else that couldn't quite be called a godly sort of an enterprise. May I say to you that the writer of the Proverbs says, if you have it in your power to do good, you better do it while you can, because the power to do evil is in the hands today of those that are ungodly, and they're not attempting to do good at all. And that is actually the reason that every program that has come up by the government to help the poor has entered into the grossest form of dishonesty. Why? For this same reason. You can't get ungodly men to do good, friends. I don't know why we think that you can Our Lord Jesus, you remember, said, you just can't get grapes from thistles. You're just wasting your time if you're trying to pick luscious fruit off of a cactus. You just won't get it that way. That's not the way it comes. Our time is up. We'll begin right there tomorrow. Until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now we've come, as we indicated last time, We got down to the second chapter of Micah, verse 1. We just got into the chapter, and therefore let me repeat again that this is the prophet's second message, and it describes specific sins. And these sins we saw beginning last time that the evil men would even lie upon their beds at night, not only committing sin there, but actually planning and plotting to commit sin the next day. In other words, it's a day and night, 24 hours a day job of doing evil. 
and that was the thing that characterized them. Now, he said that they are able to practice it because it is in their power and their hand. In other words, God was not deterring them. He could, but he was not. He was permitting them, and God does permit evil to run its course. That seems to have been his method. And the picture that the prophets have is the cup of iniquity is filling up, and certainly it is filling up today. And we find here that he continues, and he begins now to deal with these specific sins that relate to those that are around them. Again, I want to say it because it's important to say that a man who's not right with God cannot be right with his fellow man, cannot be. The human heart is so constituted that you can't be because of the fact that we do evil. We're sinners by nature. We were dead in trespasses and sins. That is, dead to God and to the things of God. Now he goes on in verse 2, and he's going to be very specific. And they covet fields and take them by violence. In other words, here are two sins, covetousness and violence, and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. Now they covet fields and take them by violence. Now we have an example of that in Israel, Ahab and Jezebel. You remember Ahab coveted the vineyard of Naboth, and he was like a spoiled brat, and he wanted it, but didn't make a move. But his wife Jezebel, I tell you, she was a sinner that believed in action, and she immediately went about getting the vineyard, and they eliminated Naboth. Well, that is one example, and it comes from the head of the government, and down below, others began to practice it. The wealthy that were able to take a field, why, they would take it, because they had the money and the power to do it. My, how that's been used, actually, in our day. We hear so much complaint today about the little businessman. Well, the little businessman doesn't stand much of a chance in this contemporary culture that we've produced today. It has to be the big operators, the big thing. And very frankly, they say we're in it for profit. Sure, they're in it for profit. But the point is that sometimes profit is nothing in the world but a synonym for covetousness. And this was the great sin that is there. I've never understood why any man wanted more than one million dollars. I've always felt if I got that much, I'd never want any more. But it seems as if when one man gets a million, he wants two million. Well, he can't eat anymore, and he actually can't sleep anymore, and he can't indulge himself anymore. He can only drink so much. He can only sin so much. And a million dollars will enable him to do all of that that he wants to, but Yet they want to continue getting richer and richer and richer. And the old bromide, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that is the story of 
mankind. And Micah's speaking into that situation, by the way. Now, will you notice that they take a man's house from him? And you see, God not only gave that land to the nation Israel and put them in it, but he gave to each tribe a particular portion of the land, and he gave to each individual a particular plot in that tribe that he was in. And that was his heritage. And God put up certain laws that he couldn't lose it forever. For the year of Jubilee meant every mortgage was canceled and every bit of property returned to its original owner. But it's a long ways between 50s, by the way, every 50 years. If you lose it the second year after Jubilee, you've got 48 years to wait and You can get very hungry in that length of time. And that was the thing that God is condemning here, that they were taking advantage, even though he'd made a law to protect the poor. Well, they always found out a way to get around it, of course. Verse 3, he says, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. Now, this is a very interesting verse here. God says, I condemn you because you even lie on your beds and you plot evil. Now, God says, I'm going to plot evil against you. Now, what does he mean by that? Was God going to do evil here? No, God was not going to do evil from his viewpoint, which is the right viewpoint but it would be evil from their viewpoint because God intended to punish them, and they wouldn't like that. They would call that evil. They would call that wrong, you see. You hear today even Christians condemning God for permitting certain things to take place. In other words, what they're saying is God is doing evil. Well, God beat you to it, friends, if you want to say he's doing evil. He says, I'm going to do evil from your viewpoint. You want to go on sinning. I'm going to stop you. I'm going to judge you. You'll say that's wrong. And a great many people are saying today, why does God let this happen to America? We're such lovely people, and we've been engaged in missions, and we're such nice folk. May I say to you that from the viewpoint of many today, God is sure doing evil, but he's not doing evil. He's judging because he always judges sin. And he says, I'm going to judge you. And he says, and I'll devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks. In other words, God intended to put around those necks the chains of bondage and the children of Israel were led away into Assyria, one of the most brutal nations that has ever been on top side of earth. And they were led away in chains. Neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. And how haughty and proud they were. And we today have been in that position as a nation. We've been a very proud nation. In fact, we have heard of the abominable snowman, but abroad today in foreign countries, it's been in the past the abominable American tourist. It's amazing how 
in many countries, and we've discovered this in the many countries we've been in, in South America and Europe and Africa and Asia. We found that we're not loved today, and we haven't been loved for years. Why? Because we have been a haughty, proud people, and we had the audacity, we had the temerity to tell the world after World War II we were going to lead them. And we thought if we just gave them a few dollars, we'd solve all the problems of the world. We sure have got this world into a mess, haven't we? And American diplomacy is nothing to boast about since World War II. And I don't care who you're talking about in office at the time. We just don't have a good record anywhere at all. And why? Well, the thing is because I think the judgment of God is already taking place. I think we've come over the hill. Now, I know that I'll get a great many letters telling me how wonderful my country is, and I love my country as much as you do. And I want to say that I not only love my country, it breaks my heart to see what's happening to it today as it continues to fall into the hand of godless rich today. And that, my friend, is not good for this land of ours. Abraham Lincoln, if he lived today, could never be elected president at all. We may make a monument to him in Washington today and put him there in stone, but he never could be put in the White House again, never again, because we've come to the place that a man has to have a good TV personality, and he needs a lot of money today, and he needs money back of him. How sad it is that today it's charisma, not character. And that is the thing that will bring a nation down. And that's the philosophy of this man's government here. Micah's telling us very definitely, it's not the character or the method of government. It is the character of the man. And that's what makes a nation. Now, will you notice he moves on here because he's really talking very plain. He says, verse 4, "...in that day shall one take up a parable against you, and lament with a doleful lamentation, and say, We are utterly spoiled. He hath changed the portion of my people. How hath he removed it from me? Turning away, he hath divided our fields." In other words, great confusion was coming, and there was lamentation and doleful lamentation By the way, this expression here, they lament with a doleful lamentation, is a very unusual thing in the Hebrew, and I doubt whether they can get it into the English to say exactly what Micah was saying. But it reveals how tragic it was that was happening, and people were very pessimistic. There seemed to be no hope at all. And they were saying we're utterly despoiled, and they were, because already Assyria had been making forays down in that land. And fact of the matter is, when they finally came, they marched to the gates of Jerusalem. And there are those that say, well, Jerusalem was in sin at this time. Why didn't God let them go into captivity? Well, I've never quite understood the ways of God. Why in the 12th chapter of Acts was James, when Herod arrested him, he put him to death. He arrested Simon Peter at the same time, and he got loose. Why did God permit that? 
Well, I read in Hebrews, some were slain with the sword, and others escaped the edge of the sword. Now, both of them did it by faith. And God permits these things to happen like this for his own purpose, and he is accomplishing his purpose. You may be sure of that. The thing is this, they were turning away from God. And as they were turning away from God, they were utterly spoiled, the northern kingdom. But a revival came to the southern kingdom under Hezekiah, and it took place shortly after Micah had written this. And that explained the reason that God gave them a few more days of grace. Now let's move on down here. And I'm reading in verse 5 now of chapter 2 of Micah. Therefore thou shalt have none that shall cast a cord by lot in the congregation of the Lord. In other words, there'll be no worship anymore of God there. Prophesy not, say they to them that prophesy. They shall not prophesy to them that they shall not take shame. O thou that art named the house of Jacob, is the Spirit of the Lord shortened? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him that walketh uprightly? And this is something very interesting. This was a time when God cut off the flow of the spirit of prophecy. Why? The people wouldn't hear it. And there became a famine of the word of God. But the important thing to note in these two verses is this. The Lord here responds by stating that he too is plotting evil and what they call evil because it's going to be judgment against him. And God's word will be received by his people who obey him and it will be rejected when they do not obey. And though it's harsh words, God's people will obey it. God's people will accept it. And God's people right now, as we're dealing with this passage of Scripture, I'm sure that you're saying this is not delightful. This is not the 23rd Psalm we're looking at or the 14th of John. But it just happens to be in the Word of God. And as far as God is concerned, he gives it just as much prominence. In fact, he didn't put this in the 23rd Psalm, and he didn't put this in the 14th chapter. He put it in the first and second chapters of Micah so you'd get it in a hurry. And God's people will accept it. Of course they'll accept it. It's because God says it. And they'll respond to it. And God, through it all, will comfort them. God will lead them and God will bless them. Now, verse 8, "...even of late my people are risen up as an enemy." Ye pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely as men averse from war. Now, God says, you are my people, but you've actually become my enemy. And one of the evidences of it here is the way they were treating the poor. God always takes up for the poor. You see, he says, you pull off the robe with the garment from them that pass by securely. The robe, evidently, is what the man slept in under. Actually, take his bed out from in under him and over him, if you please, and no cover. That's how far they were willing to go to rob the poor. Now, will you notice again, verse 9, "...the women of my people 
have ye cast out from their pleasant houses. And I take it that here we're dealing with a slum problem, and God never would permit their furniture to be put out on the street, and especially of widows. From their children have ye taken away my glory forever. God says that these children will grow up to despise you. These children will grow up to be in rebellion. We certainly had that in our day. I'm not sure but what God today has been speaking to us in many different ways. I think the rebellion of youth was permitted of God to try to shake us out of our lethargy. And it didn't do very much, by the way. Verse 10, Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it's polluted. It shall destroy you even with a great destruction. Now, actually, what they were doing there, they were attempting to solve their problems and be at rest without being at rest with God or at peace with God. They were attempting to work it out without God. And as a result, it'll come to naught. Now, in verse 11, God says, If a man walking in the Spirit and falsehood do lie, saying, I will prophesy unto thee of wine and of strong drink, he shall even be the prophet of this people. And this is biting sarcasm. God says that the kind of prophets that you want are those that will approve you of your sins. And today, I'll be very frank with you. I broadcast a program that's at a terrible disadvantage. I don't attempt to say things that are going to comfort you unless the Word of God says it. And when it speaks a judgment, I speak a judgment. And that's what we have here. And I know it's not popular. And a great many people, the unsaved man, he doesn't want anyone to prophesy and say that drinking is wrong and drunkenness is bad. Of course he doesn't. And we have a great many today. And unfortunately, in so-called conservative circles, there are few today that are approving social drinking. They say we're living in a new day and we're not under law and we can do these things. My friend, may I say this to you today? You may not have a specific rule or regulation, and you are under grace today, but there's one thing for sure. If you love him, you're going to keep his commandments. And he sure does condemn drunkenness, doesn't he? And the prophets in that day that were the popular prophets... They weren't condemning the sins of the people. They were saying nice things, popular things. But they were not speaking to the sins of the people. Now, it is to the northern kingdom that he's speaking directly. And the judgment is severe. The judgment actually is very harsh. Then you would not think when you come to the end of chapter 2 that you would find this very beautiful little prophecy of the future that shines here like a ray of sunshine that breaks through the dark clouds on a stormy day. Listen now as I read verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. And 
You notice when God speaks of them actually as sinners, he's using the term, O Jacob. And that is a term that means if he's going to do this, he's not going to do it because of their worthiness or because of some character trait or something that they have. But it simply means that God is going to do it by his grace. Now, this is something that refers to the future. It could never have been fulfilled in the Babylonian captivity. And it has not been fulfilled in their recent return to the land. Couldn't be. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. And there are more of the nation Israel in New York City than there is in the whole land of Israel. And there's a great company of them still in Russia today. So God has not really assembled them yet according to prophecy. And he says, then I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. Now, he's using both names, Jacob and now Israel. Now he's speaking of a remnant. Now, that is the remnant. And he's always had that remnant out of the nation. And he's never had anything but the remnant. There never has been a time when it could be said that they had turned to God 100%. And it was always for the sake of the remnant that God was gracious to them. And in the day that is coming in the future, even in the great tribulation period, when we read, all Israel shall be saved, who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about all of Israel that belong to that company of 144,000. They are all going to make it through. Book of Revelation makes it clear that they were sealed, and that, I think, means sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, and that they are going to be able to make it through the great tribulation period. But they are only a remnant. After all, there are probably three million of those people today that are in that land, and there are probably 12 million out of the land, so that 144,000 is a remnant, and that's all that it could be considered. Now, God says, I will put them together like the sheep of Basra. Now, Basra was a place of many flocks of sheep. And the reason was the grass was especially green and tender there. And God says, I'm going to put them together like the sheep of Basra. In other words, the 23rd Psalm will be fulfilled. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters. And this is the thing that he's talking about here, by the way. Now he says, I'll put them together like the sheep of Basra, like the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men, because of the fact that there is a great number returned to the land. When God returns the nation to the land, that doesn't mean all of them are going to be saved by any means. But it's going to be a tremendous thing. Now, if what has happened in our day has caused so many of the prophetic teachers to become very much in exultation and in rejoicing that they're seeing prophecy fulfilled, which I don't think we're seeing, 
But I do believe that if what we've seen is an occasion for rejoicing, what will it be when God really returns the nation to the land? Now, in verse 13, it says, "...the breaker is come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and have gone out of it, and their king shall pass before them, and the Lord at the head of them." Now, that will be the time when I think they enter the millennial kingdom. It's when the Lord will be the one to lead them. He will then have returned to the earth. And, of course, I don't think anyone has quite gone far enough to say that he has returned. He hasn't yet. And believe me, the world will know it when he does return to this earth. Now, that brings us to the third chapter. And in the third chapter, we have a division that we have made here, and you'll find it in our notes. The first four verses, you have the sins of the princes. Now, the theme of this chapter is that in this third message, he denounces the leaders of the nation for their sins. And we find that First of all, it's the sin of the princes in the first four verses. And we'll see that now in just a moment. But verses 5 to 8, we see the sins of the prophets. They are the spiritual leaders. And then in verses 9 through 12, we see the sins of all the leaders of Jerusalem. That includes the princes and the prophets, but also the priests. And now we see the injustice of the rulers there in that last section, verses 9 through 12. Now, we'll begin here with the first group in the first four verses. And as we said at the beginning, the way that you can tell these major divisions of the book, he always gives this exclamation of, hear. It's a call to hear. Hear, all ye people back in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now in chapter 3, And I said, Hear, I pray you, O heads of Jacob. And now he's speaking to the leadership of the nation. And ye princes of the house of Israel. They is specifically now at first is to the princes, the political rulers, then the religious rulers. And then he bundles them all together and even puts the priests with that last group. But he says, And ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means simply this. These people have been in the position of judging themselves. The princes sat in judgment over the nation. The people that were found guilty of a crime were brought before the prince for judgment. And now they ought to know what justice is. They ought to know what judgment is. And this is something that you find again in the second chapter of Romans. You remember the Lord Jesus through Paul said this, verse 1 of chapter 2 of Romans, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. 
for thou that judgest doest the same things. And he doesn't mean identical things, but similar things. And that is, if you sit in judgment on others, then may I say you will be known as a harsh critic and a harsh judge. And then you in turn will be judged for that, you see. You've done the same thing. You can look at the other fellow and criticize him. It's easy to do that, you know. It's amazing how we can see the faults in others that we can't see in ourselves. When Nathan came in and told David about a man in his kingdom that had a great many sheep, and he went over and took the one little ewe lamb that his neighbor had, the poor fellow only had one, and he took that and slew the little lamb. Well, that was injustice, and David is the king. David stood up, and I think he's a red-headed fellow. Man, he was hot. This thing in somebody else, he could see. But he has done the same thing. And Nathan says, you are the man. You did this. And David accepted the judgment and confessed his guilt before God. Now, that is the reason God says to these leaders in Israel, you've been in the place of judgment. You've judged others. And yet you have done the same thing. And my feeling is that the reason so many judges in our land today have been so lenient with criminals and have not wanted the death penalty, that it's actually a bad conscience that's bothering them. I have a notion that many a time when a judge sits on the bench, and a man's brought before him accused of a certain crime, that that judge gives a light sentence because it more or less saves his own conscience. And that, again, may I say, is a reason there should always be men of character in places of leadership. And I must repeat this. It's not the form of government that is important. If you've got a good king, it's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the character of the leadership that is all important for a nation. Now, their character will determine the way they'll judge. And I think that we've had a very enlightening view of the leadership of our nation today, especially judges, in giving light sentences. It's nothing in the world but a guilt complex that's causing them to give that sort of thing today. Why? Because we need men of character in that position. And God says he's going to judge them. Very frankly, I think it's almost a joke when you have a group of congressmen investigating something in politics, and probably everyone sitting there judging the other fellow. They've got a skeleton in their own closet. And We've had reason to believe that in the past few months and years, have we not? In my entire lifetime, I've never felt that there were men that were in places of leadership that were fit to sit in judgment on other men. It takes men a character to do that sort of thing, you see. Now, that's exactly what God is saying to them. Is it not for you to know justice? You're not doing this in ignorance. You've had experience in this. You've had men brought to you guilty. Now you are guilty. That's what God is saying. 
who hate the good and you love the evil. It's very hard for a judge who was at a cocktail party the night before, and he got a little tipsy himself, to sentence the man brought before him the next day who has killed somebody because he was a drunken driver. No wonder he lets him off easy. A man who drinks and is a judge, in my judgment, is not fit to sit in judgment on alcoholics that are brought before him that have killed somebody. Now, I know what I'm talking about, friends, because my mother was killed by a drunken driver right here in Pasadena. And I want to tell you, I would not press charges. I didn't feel I should press charges. But I told the court when I was called in as a witness, I said to the court, I feel like justice should be done. I'm not asking you to take vengeance on the man. That's all I would do if I did that. All I ask is that justice be done. And believe me, he got off light for a very light sentence. And I always had a feeling as I looked at that judge that he had a pretty bad conscience, by the way. May I say to you, the leadership, they actually hated the good and they loved the evil. Now, folk like that are not fit to be in positions of leadership today. A man that is a congressman or in any position of government, a senator or a judge or any other high position in government, if it's discovered that that man is unfaithful to his wife, is that man or that group of men, are they fit to make laws relative to marriage? I don't think so. I don't think they're in a position to. No wonder we have the breakdown of morality. It goes to the leadership, and God puts the blame on the leadership here of the nation Israel. And this, as we said at the beginning, God is presenting in Micah a philosophy of human government. And basically, you have to have men of character. And he says here, you hate the good, love the evil. And then he uses a vivid illustration here. Who pluck off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones. In other words, you're a cannibal when you sit in judgment on others. And when you love the evil and you hate the good. Verse 3, listen to him. He's talking about human cannibals who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them, and they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and like flesh within the cauldron. In other words, no feeling enters into the judgment at all. No high principle, no character that enters into it. May I say to you that a godless man is the last person that I want to sit in judgment on me on anything. And very frankly, I'm thankful that I don't have to stand before you in judgment, even if you're a Christian today. And you ought to be delighted that you're not going to have to stand before me in judgment. I'm of the opinion that I'm going to come off better in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ than I'm going to come off in the presence of mankind. And so I appeal my case. My case has already been appealed to him. 
and I'm not before you today for judgment, and you are not before me today in judgment. And how wonderful that is, by the way, to know that. Now, he says, verse 4, "...then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he'll not hear them." Who is he talking about? About these leaders. Now, long as they are in a high position, and they have no regard for the human side, there's no real sympathy, no real love, and they're in trouble because a power greater than they are has come down upon them. Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he'll not hear them. God says, I'll let the judgment come upon you. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. God says, now they're going to cry to me. And isn't that interesting? We all cry out to God in time of real trouble. I've been rather amused, and ought not to be, but I can't help but be amused when I hear today the trouble that has come to us. And every now and then somebody says, may God help us. Well, finally God got in the door. I thought they'd bowed him out of his universe. He hasn't been mentioned much except in profanity. But now I find people are saying today, may God help us. Well, my friend, I don't know whether he's going to hear you or not. Because he said to these people who had ignored him and had been godless and had turned their back upon God and had lived godless lives, yet they were sitting in judgment on other people. And they had ground down the people because they're not capable. Oh, I don't care whether they graduated from Harvard Law School. That doesn't mean anything. In fact, that could make the worst kind of a judge or the worst kind of a person to sit into a high position because he'd be clever, but he'd still love evil. Therefore, today, my friend, we need men and women who have a heart, who have more than just cleverness with the law. We need men and women today who, I think, know God. Because when trouble comes, God has certainly not promised to hear them. And he told his people then, when you cry unto me, he'll not hear them. He'll even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. God says, I'm going to hide my face from you. And believe me, it looks like he's not doing very much about the situation in the world today. We are in the period of the silence of God. But his grace is still abundant. He's rich in mercy, rich in grace to those who will bow before him and come and accept his Son as Savior. Now we've come in verse 5 where we begin God's judgment of the prophets. And actually, the conduct of the prophets is just about as reprehensible as that of the princes. In fact, I'm not sure, but what it's more so. Because the sins of the prophet is that they misinform the people. And not only that, they mislead them. And this type of thing, they know better, but they do not respond to giving out God's Word. 
Now, will you notice specifically, for he will spell out the sins of the prophets here. And I read now in verse 5, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry, Peace, and he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Well, here is the thing that the prophets were doing. They actually were like really a vicious animal or like a serpent with a forked tongue and a fang that would poison. Actually, they're worse than that because they got up and they used smooth words and attempted to comfort the people. And they spoke of peace, that peace was coming. You know, the futile effort of man for peace ought to begin to shake some people in their thinking that man by himself cannot bring peace to the world. And just by wanting it and saying it enough and say you are for it and vote for it, that doesn't mean you're going to have peace. Now, again, Micah makes it very clear that the problem is not on the surface. The problem is not this problem of wanting peace. The problem is that the human heart is wicked. The human heart is sinful. And God says, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, the contemporary of Micah, Isaiah, is the one who said that. And he said it three times in the last part of his prophecy. That was the great climax he would come to each time, that the problem was in the human heart, that the problem is there. It's not a question today when I make a statement that we cannot have peace today. Well, I generally get two or three letters from some well-meaning folk, and they're very lovely folk. They write a lovely letter, and they say, Oh, Dr. McGee, don't be so pessimistic. Don't say that. We should continue to try to bring peace in the world. We should continue our efforts in that connection. And they're sincere in that. And it sounds good. But friends, may I say to you, it's one of the most false teachings that's abroad today that man can make peace that way. I want peace as much as anyone wants peace, but I want to go at it God's way. The individual must first of all know what the peace of God is. How are you going to know it? Paul says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have peace with your fellow man till you have peace with God. And the human heart is one that you just can't trust at all. The heart's desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? You and I really do not know how bad that we really are and that we can stoop and go probably as low as any creature can. In fact, we talk about we've come from animals. The proof that we have not come from animals is 
that man can go lower than animals. Animals can't go as low as mankind can go. Animals don't go out and get drunk. Animals today do not of their own, do not desert their offspring. They follow a certain rule and a certain pattern. But mankind can go lower than the animal world. Now, that is the thing. The prophet is a prophesying peace. When actually Assyria in the north was getting ready to come down upon them. And today, there is efforts being made in different sections of the world to get people together and to get them to sit down at a table and reason out and not go to war. And in spite of all of that, and now for at least about 6,000 years of recorded history, man still goes to war. He still fights among themselves one nation against another nation, one tribe against another tribe, one family against another family, one individual against another individual. Why do that? We ought not to. It's not to the advantage of either side. But we do it because we're alienated from God and we're in rebellion against them. But we won't face up to what the real problem is. We want to smooth the thing out with smooth words. We want to say, we're going to have peace. Well, may I say to you, we've been saying it a long time. And these are false prophets. That's what God calls false prophets. And because they do this sort of thing, God is going to pronounce upon them the calamities that are going to come upon them. Listen to verse 6 here. He says, Therefore night shall be unto you. And night and darkness, as we've seen in the prophets, always speaks of judgment. And it speaks of judgment in two different ways. Of the direct intervention of God in the punishing of the offender. And then in the silence of God in not giving any revelation to man at all. And so here we have mentioned again, Therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision. That is, God will not reveal any new truth to you. And it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine. And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. In other words, the judgment that is coming to them is called here darkness. And the sun will go down. And what he's talking about, there will not be any light from the Word of God, the light which they formerly had from God. They will no longer have this cessation of prophecy. Now, you'll recall that actually Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 Verse 8 made reference to this. He said, Love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Well, they'll fail in two different ways. They'll be fulfilled. And when they're fulfilled, then they have failed, that is. They no longer look forward to the future. In other words, they're no longer prophecies. They're now history. 
but in another way. Then God does not reveal anything new to them. You have quite a hiatus between the Old and New Testament of approximately 400 years. The sun had gone down. And Malachi, the last one, promised that the sun had come up again. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. But they were entering the night at that time because there'd be no purpose of the sun coming up if it hadn't been night. It wouldn't make sense. And so... They entered a long night, and that is the picture that is presented here. We today have moved into a unique position as a nation. I think very much the same position that these people had moved into. At the beginning of our nation, and it's so easy for the critic today and the very sophisticated historian today likes to tell about what barbarians our ancestors were, how narrow-minded they were, and what bigots they were that came to this country. Well, they were human beings, but they had a reverence for the Word of God. Even those that were not Christians had had a reverence for the Word of God, and they had a certain knowledge of it. Because actually, the reason that both Harvard and Yale universities were founded were to train ministers so that people in this country would not be in the darkness of ignorance of the Word of God. But I tell you, the light's gone out, hasn't it? And today, the very places that were supposed to be great educational centers, great lights for the country, they turned off God long time ago. And night's on us today. And the universities have had the worst riots of any places. They have become the very hotbed today of darkness. And that is where this worship of Satan originated in our day. And it's where it's being propagated today. I had a clipping the other day of where a professor has gone off into this sort of thing, the worship of Satan today and indulging in the occult. May I say to you, we're in a period again, it would seem to me, when the sun of revelation has gone down. Now, what I mean actually by revelation is illumination of the Word of God, that today the very centers that should be giving light from the Word of God are not doing it anymore. In fact, they're rejecting it, turning their back on it, and at the same time turning to the occult. Now, that's exactly what he's talking about here. Therefore, night shall be unto you. Ye shall not have a vision. It shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine. The sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Now, will you notice, he says, Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there's no answer from God. In other words, they will be in such gross darkness that those that are false prophets, God will make a fool of them by the fact that their prophecies do not come to pass at all. You will recall that was the thing that Ahab discovered. Of course, he discovered it too late that all these prophets that were before him that said for him to go out and fight in the war, the only one man that was God's man, Micaiah, 
said, there's one thing for sure. If you go out, you won't come back. You'll be slain. And it's too bad that Ahab didn't listen to him because he didn't come back. He was slain as the prophet of God had said to him. And we just well tell the truth today. Friends, there's no use trying to cover up this idea even of church membership. That has become almost revolting when you hear today some man that has been a leader and looked up to and even quotes the Bible every now and then. And then we find out what a sinner that he really is. And we see many prospering today as church members. When you go back and read the 12th chapter of Hebrews again, we looked at that some time ago. And in that, we saw that whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And every son that he receives. And why does he do that? Well, he says that I don't want you to be illegitimate. And I chasten you, I discipline you, so that you can know and the world can know that you're my child. William the Conqueror actually signed his name William the Bastard, because he was illegitimate. And I'm of the opinion that a great many church members today could sign their name the same way. I'm a deacon in the church. I'm a Sunday school teacher. I'm a leader in the church. And I'm a preacher. But you'd have to write under it what William the Conqueror wrote under his name when he signed it. I really am not a legitimate child of God. I have not really been born again. I do not really know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I do not love him. I do not seek to serve him. I'm not interested in his word at all. Now, these false prophets, you see, they were in this position. God was going to make them ridiculous, and the light of prophecy would go out, and they were speaking these smooth words. Why? They were words that would comfort the people. The people had itching ears, and the prophet would scratch them by saying something they wanted to hear. And then they, in turn, scratched the prophet's ears because he had itching ears. They told him how wonderful he was. They said, my, what a great preacher you are because you say such nice, flowery, lovely things and everything must be all right. And they were living in luxury. But my, the morality was horrible and was frightening. Now, will you notice, Micah's very clear to separate himself from that group. In verse 8, he says, But truly, I'm full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. He says that it takes intestinal fortitude to say what I'm saying, what I'm going to say it because I believe that the Spirit of God is with me. In fact, Micah could say, I know the Spirit of God is leading me to say what I'm saying. It's wonderful to be in that kind of a position, my friend. Now, will you notice, as we come down to the last division here, 9 through 12, 
we have now the sins of the leaders of Jerusalem. And it's specifically now he turns to Jerusalem. Heretofore, it's been Israel in the north. But now he turns specifically to Jerusalem. And he bundles together here the prophets and the princes and the priests. And the judgment is on all of them. Now, will you notice the things that he says here? Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel that abhor justice and pervert all equity. Now, he says, listen to me, I have something to say to you. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Well, how do they do that? Listen to him. Verse 11, her heads judge for reward and her priests teach for hire, and our prophets divine for money. What is the thing that they all have in common? Greed, covetousness. And that, my friend, was the worst kind of idolatry even in that day of idols. And today we don't have an idol sitting around anywhere. At least I hope you don't. A great many people are becoming very superstitious today and have little gadgets around, and they follow their horoscope and all that sort of thing. But we still haven't reverted to the base idolatry that was in existence in that day. But now he puts into focus their real sin. And it is idolatry, for covetousness is idolatry. And the judge was judging for reward. And the priests were teaching for hire. And the prophets, they were doing it for money. And therefore, since they were all doing it for what they could get out of it themselves, then they did not take in consideration God, nor did they take in consideration other people. They were willing to walk over them. No wonder the prophet said, you eat them up like a cannibal. You're eating the people up. Why? Because of your greed and your love of money. That, my friend, is probably the root trouble today in many places. When the leadership of a nation is evil, no form of government will work. I don't care what it is. That's what he's saying to us here. Now, will you listen to him in this last verse here? Verse 12, "...therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. And you can look at Jerusalem even today, but if you want to read Jeremiah twenty six eighteen, you'll find out this came to pass. And even Jerusalem today bears the scar marks of the fulfillment of this prophecy here. <laughs> 